Since the dawn of civilization, spies of every nation and culture have worked to infiltrate their adversaries and glean the information that will give their side the advantage. The stakes are sky high, the strategies varied and imaginative, and the ultimate sign of success is that no one ever even knew you were there. In each episode, we will explore the moral and ethical gray zones of espionage, where treachery and betrayal go hand in hand with cunning and courage. This is the Spycraft 101 podcast. Welcome to your clandestine classroom. This is episode number 31 of the Spycraft 101 podcast. Today's episode is another solo episode where I share with you some of my own research into what I think are the most fascinating tales of the Cold War. This is the story of three incredibly brave Americans employed by the Central Intelligence Agency who found themselves in some of the worst circumstances imaginable in Havana, Cuba in the early 1960s. They persevered through incredible hardships, kept their cover identities intact, and returned home with honor after nearly three years of deprivations and suffering at the hands of Fidel Castro's government. In 1960, three technicians from the CIA's Technical Services Division were dispatched to Havana, Cuba to install surveillance equipment in a building that was about to be occupied by the Chinese embassy. The three men's names were David Christ, Thornton Anderson, and Walter Zeminski. They were not trained case officers or field operatives. They probably would have felt much more at home in a laboratory than in a hostile environment. In fact, this mission was Thornton Anderson's first assignment with the CIA outside of the United States. Their work in Cuba was part of a move by the CIA to integrate technical collection activities more closely with fieldwork. Up until then, the agency's case officers had used standard spycraft techniques such as dead drops and personal face-to-face meetings to accomplish their missions. So the rapid progress in miniaturizing technological devices during that era was still mostly unknown to case officers at that time. For this reason, the audio technicians of the Technical Services Division were performing many of the kinds of daring operations that we now associate with spycraft, especially in film and TV. It wasn't case officers who were breaking into foreign government buildings or bugging hotel rooms. It was technicians. Oftentimes, they were the ones developing and perfecting surreptitious entry techniques and figuring out how to evade sentries or guard dogs and that sort of thing. For many years during the Cold War, These technicians were barely at home, racing from one international mission to the next, living in cheap hotels in third world capital cities, always at danger of being discovered or even arrested. Now, this particular operation in Havana was driven by two key factors. The first was that Chinese intentions in the Caribbean were one of the CIA Far East Division's highest priorities. The second factor was that opportunities for permissive operations inside of Cuba were rapidly disappearing. Fidel Castro had just seized power in Cuba the year before, and no one in the U.S. quite knew what to make of him yet. 
there was still some hope that Castro could be swayed to become an American ally. But by this time, he was already making overtures to the Soviet Union and now to China as well. Because of Cuba's close proximity to the continental United States, one of the U.S. government's highest priorities was determining what his next moves might be, especially when it came to potential alliances with the other major world powers. This combination of high-value target and a diminishing window of opportunity led the CIA to act in haste, and in the world of spycraft, haste can often lead to disaster. So, the three technicians arrived in Cuba with only very shallow cover identities. They were carrying U.S. passports and driver's licenses with false names, but they did not have an extensive backstory set up for verification if they were detained or imprisoned. For example, the home address of Zuminsky's alias was the home of his current girlfriend, who was unaware that he was working for the CIA. If someone came knocking on her door asking for Edmund Taransky, which was the name on his passport, she would truthfully answer that she didn't know anyone by that name. Not long after they arrived in Cuba, these shallow cover identities would prove to be a serious problem. Once Christ, Anderson, and Zeminski arrived in Havana, the first major issue presented itself immediately. The Cuban owner of the building, which the Chinese government was about to occupy, had decided that he was no longer willing to cooperate with the Americans. So the mission appeared to be a bust right from the start. <clears throat> However, another valuable target presented itself in the meantime. The New China News Agency would also be renting space in Havana, and someone who was already on the CIA's payroll coincidentally lived in the apartment directly above the one that would be rented by the news agency. This Cuban asset was willing to allow the surveillance team to emplace listening devices in his apartment directed at the news agency one floor below. An operation like this could potentially take several days to complete because of the care that had to be taken to leave no trace whatsoever of their work. For example, even a sprinkling of plaster powder, which fell from the ceiling onto the floor below, could be enough for someone to get a ladder and try to figure out where the plaster was coming from. Technicians like Christ and Anderson and Zuminski became experts at learning just how to silently drill into a wall from the opposite side and insert a microphone right up to within a millimeter of the wall's surface in the target room. This approach was very effective, but it couldn't be accomplished quickly. While the three men were working in the assets apartment one night, Cuban authorities suddenly burst into the room with their weapons drawn. It's still not clear to this day how the men were discovered. Possibly it was due to a surveillance operation against them. Castro was already highly suspicious of Americans in Havana, even at this early stage, and quite frankly, he had a good reason to be. It may also be that the Cuban assets sold them out. But for whatever reason, they were caught red-handed, and there wasn't much that they could say or do in their own defense. All three of the men were quickly searched, and then they were herded into the back bedroom of the apartment they had been bugging and held there at gunpoint. They claimed that they were all tourists, just as their cover identities described, and they explained that while they were visiting Cuba, they had been asked by an embassy employee, a U.S. embassy employee, to do a little electrical contracting for him. 
Now, this is an incredibly flimsy story that they made up right there on the spot, but it was one that they stuck with for the entirety of their coming three-year ordeal. CIA men were held in that bedroom overnight in complete silence as the Cubans waited in an ambush just in case anyone else who was part of their team arrived unexpectedly. This long night was very nerve-wracking for the technicians, but their Cuban captors became bored and eventually started playing with their issued revolvers. Believe it or not, one policeman accidentally shot himself in the hand inside the apartment as the night dragged on. This general lack of professionalism among the Cuban authorities would play to the advantage of Christ and Anderson and Zominski over the entire course of their confinement. <clears throat> uh, in hindsight, it's clear that some corners had been cut in an effort to conduct this operation as quickly as possible before U.S.-Cuba relations completely deteriorated. David Christ had visited the island a few weeks earlier undercover as a tourist, and he had reported to a fellow CIA employee that he believed he was under surveillance the entire time. Someone else probably should have gone in Chris's place for this reason on this mission, but for various reasons, no one else was available at the moment. Several audio engineers from the technical services division were on vacation or were transitioning to other permanent duty stations right at the moment that they were needed. And Hurricane Donna was bearing down on the region from the middle of the Atlantic, which meant they couldn't afford to wait because no one knew how travel would be affected by the oncoming hurricane. David Chris's presence on the mission was just by itself a huge risk at the time. The CIA considered him to be probably the most knowledgeable officer in the agency of worldwide audio operations, quote unquote. So if he broke under harsh interrogation and started talking, he could potentially compromise technical collection operations all over the world. Thousands of man hours of work, millions of dollars spent on operations, and many of his peers and co-workers would all be put in immense danger while operating overseas. David Christ could prove to be the weak link that broke the entire operational chain. In the aftermath of his arrest, the CIA completed a risk assessment, which determined that Christ had knowledge of the following. Number one, all audio operations worldwide for the previous three years. Complete knowledge of all research and development aspects of audio equipment research. Complete knowledge of all audio assets in production or stocked up for overseas use. Complete knowledge of the location of all audio technicians worldwide. Having previously been assigned to the Applied Physics branch of the Technical Services Division, he was also aware of many other R&D activities. And as the audio branch chief in the Technical Services Division, he had full information on all personnel in TSD and general knowledge of the overall activities, including the research programs. Even worse than David's knowledge of worldwide operations was a fact that the CIA could hardly even bear to think about at the time. Not long before his disastrous trip to Havana, Christ had been briefed on the planned invasion of Cuba. The date and location for the invasion hadn't been determined yet at the time that he was briefed, but if he broke under interrogation, Castro's forces would be fully prepared for one of the CIA's largest ever covert operations. Fortunately, 
Chris proved himself to be an astonishingly resilient leader throughout the entire ordeal, and he never provided actionable intelligence to anyone, despite everything that he was put through. For the first 29 days after their arrest, Chris, Anderson, and Zeminski were held prisoner at the G2 headquarters. This was a brand new organization in the Cuban government, and it was highly disorganized and unprofessional at the time, as we've already seen. In fact, the G2 wouldn't be officially organized and officially recognized until the following year, 1961. But they were already an organization to be feared even then. Over the coming years, the G2 would work closely with the Soviet KGB and grow to be an incredibly capable entity in its own right. The G2 would later run a series of highly damaging agents within the United States, including Anna Montez, a career analyst at the Defense Intelligence Agency, and Walter and Gwen Myers, who spied for Cuba from 1978 until their arrest in 2009. Uh, Walter Myers was a State Department analyst with a top secret clearance who worked for Cuba for over 30 years. However, in 1960, the organization still had a long way to go before it became the formidable adversary it was in later years. Each of the three men were interrogated at least four separate times that first month. Their primary interrogator was somebody they began to call Bad Teeth because they never actually learned his name. Bad Teeth was not an experienced interrogator, and he would slowly leaf through a training manual right in front of them to determine what approach to take next. The three Americans watched him skip around in the book based on his whims. Thornton Anderson said that if the man had actually paid attention and just gone through the training manual from beginning to end, the Americans might have actually broken eventually. As their first month in the G2's prison cells dragged on, David Christ made peace with the idea that he might just be executed by the Cubans for his suspected crimes. As the team leader, Chris did everything he could to shift the blame away from Anderson and Zeminski and onto himself and the unnamed and fictional embassy employee who had requested their electrical work. He later said, quote, I kept thinking of my two sons. I just made up my mind that if I had to get shot, that's where I was going to be, and I wasn't going to do anything to disgrace my country. I didn't ever want any stigma to be passed on to my sons, end quote. After nearly a month in the cells of the G2 in Havana, the CIA men were transferred to the La Cabana prison where they would spend the next 101 days awaiting trial. The La Cabana prison was just absolutely disgusting and it was barren of anything approaching comfort or even livability. Because it was a transient center, prisoners were constantly being brought in and taken out again, with many of them executed there on the grounds. Over the next few months, the Americans were often awakened to the sound of gunfire as a fellow prisoner was executed just a few yards away outside of their cell. Hundreds of prisoners were executed at La Cabana in the early days of Fidel Castro's rule. On the day of their show trial in December 1960, the three CIA men were led past the execution grounds on the way to the courtroom. Anderson later recalled seeing bits of human remains from the most recent executions still stuck to the bullet-riddled wall. Their trial lasted approximately four hours. Uh, after the long detention, though, there were a few brief moments of hope to be had that day. 
the American consul named Hugh Kessler made an appearance as their representative. This was the first time they'd spoken to someone from the American government since they were arrested. And the Cuban prosecutors did not demand a death sentence as the men had expected. Instead, they recommended 30-year prison terms for all three men. While they were awaiting sentencing after the trial, Kessler was in a good mood and he was telling them that they'd done great jobs on the stand. He even brought them Coca-Colas from a vending machine. And when he left that afternoon, he promised to see them on the next visitation day. That was the last time that the men would see a U.S. government representative for more than two years. A few days later, the United States withdrew diplomatic recognition of the Cuban government and closed the embassy in Havana. The three Americans were sentenced to 10-year prison terms for activities against the security of the Cuban state. They were then transferred to their third and final location to serve out their sentences at the Presidium Modelo on the Isle of Pines, which is now known as the Isle of Youth, south of the main island of Cuba. This horrible, overcrowded prison would become their home for more than two years. Fidel Castro himself had been held at the Presidium Modelo after his failed 1953 attack on the Moncada police barracks. And despite his treatment there, or maybe because of his treatment there, he now used the facility to incarcerate everyone he thought opposed his new dictatorship. Fidel's regime had already relegated approximately 6,000 political prisoners there. Most of them were upper-class Cubans, such as journalists who had published unflattering portrayals of the events of the revolution. The Presidio Modelo itself was an absolute monument to cruelty and desperation. It was built in the 1920s to house approximately 4,500 prisoners, but was now overcrowded and filthy. Its five circular buildings held hundreds of cells each with no cell doors to keep the prisoners confined inside. The main floor was a common area with an enormous watchtower with dark tinted windows built in the exact center. The prison guards entered and exited through an underground tunnel so that the prisoners never saw them and never know who might be watching them at any given moment. On their first day at the Presidium, the Americans were luckily able to get two cells right next to each other inside of Circular 4, so they stayed together for the duration of their sentences. Beds were in short supply, but the men were eventually able to purchase beds from other prisoners at a price of 30 pesos. Because of food shortages, hungry prisoners were willing to give up their only creature comfort in order to buy a little extra food for the day. For the first month, their attorney paid a local family to deliver them extra food, and they ate much better than the other Cuban prisoners. But even this single advantage diminished over time as the delivered food was of lower and lower quality. All three men lost between 30 and 70 pounds each during their incarceration at the Presidium Modelo. Incredible stress and pressure were their constant companions on the inside. The men naturally stood out as Americans among thousands of Cubans. They were under threat by various groups within the Presidium throughout their detention. The prison was a lawless place and riots were very common. Suicides also occurred with frequency. Suicides also occurred quite frequently as a prisoner could easily jump to their death over the railing at any time. 
the guards were even known to open fire into the common areas at times, so ricocheting bullets were a constant threat, even if you were minding your own business. Somehow, despite the odds stacked against them, the men made the best of their terrible situation. Although they surely felt abandoned by their government, and despite the constant cruelty of their incarceration and threat of death and disease, they persisted. They never gave up hope or their honor. To their fellow prisoners, they became trusted friends and eventually leaders. Under some of the worst conditions imaginable, they used their unique skills to turn the odds in their favor. Christ, Anderson, and Zeminski began by circulating throughout the prison every single day, offering encouragement and building rapport with their fellow inmates. Slowly over time, the men's Spanish language skills got better, and they even began teaching classes in English, giving lectures on the U.S. Constitution, on capitalism, on free elections, and other aspects of American life. They acted essentially as agents of influence against the Castro regime from within the walls of its harshest prison. Presumably, their fellow captives didn't need a lot of encouragement to see the consequences of communist revolutionary rule. They also put their engineering talents to great use, with almost no tools or supplies to work with beyond their own can-do attitudes and ingenuity. The Americans set out to work solving a few different problems they encountered. They were able to create a slide rule out of an old cigar box after finding an engineering textbook that had somehow survived for years in the prison. Then, after a lot of scrounging and experimentation, they built a homemade radio. They used intravenous lines from the infirmary, infirmary for tubes, a smuggled earpiece, and Russian transistors. They fabricated a battery using zinc from a metal bucket, copper from stripped electrical wires, and copper sulfate they found in medical supplies. The radio's tuning coil was copper wire wrapped around an empty cardboard toilet paper tube. Once they were finished, the radio worked well enough to pick up broadcasts from Key West and New Orleans. The men were able to climb out on the roof of the prison one night and listen to American music for the first time in nearly two years. With the radio finally linking them to the outside world once again, they went one step further and created an underground newspaper for the prisoners. By enlisting a former Cuban radio operator and a former legal secretary to act as a stenographer, they began printing a daily handwritten newspaper to circulate among the prisoners. They used their bilingual skills to interpret English-language news overheard on their clandestine radio and always advocated from a pro-U.S. viewpoint. They also prevented at least one of the many suicides in the prison by grabbing a man who was preparing to jump off of the fifth floor balcony and then taking him down from his sense of hopelessness. The man was a Cuban astrologer who had sealed his own fate by predicting Castro's downfall in his newspaper column. He survived the suicide attempt and didn't try again while they were there. Besides Christ, Anderson, and Zeminski, there was at least one other American citizen being held at the Presidium Modelo. Richard Pecorero was a soldier of fortune who had been captured long before and had since lost his mind during his long prison sentence. He was filthy and he no longer spoke, just snarled at anyone who came along to bother him. 
The three other Americans worked to befriend him, and they arranged for another prisoner who had been a psychiatrist to spend time with Pecorero and provide therapy with the help of a translator. They even arranged for Pecorero to receive a supply of Valium from outside the prison walls. As it turns out, placing highly motivated, highly resilient technical geniuses like Chris Anderson and Zeminski in the Presidium Modelo was an enormous mistake by the Cuban government. Nothing that the system did could break their spirits, and they constantly found ways to beat their oppressors at their own game. The men became trusted friends and leaders among the thousands of Cuban political prisoners. Before we go on, I want to take a moment to fill you guys in on the newest tool that I'm wearing and carrying in daily life. It's the Donovan non-metallic knife from Black Triangle. If you aren't familiar with Black Triangle, then you're really missing out. I love these guys because they put the dagger in cloak and dagger. If you've been following me for a while now, then you probably already know why Black Triangle has called their newest non-metallic knife the Donovan. It's named after General William Wild Bill Donovan, the head of the U.S. Office of Strategic Services during World War II. Under Donovan, the OSS was unconventional, unexpected, and highly effective, just like Black Triangle's tools. The Donovan is manufactured here in the United States. It's made entirely of G10 composite, and it comes with a thermoplastic sheath and a couple of amazing extras, which you'll have to see for yourself. You can find it at blacktriangle.com. That's B-L-K triangle.com. You can also get 15% off your first order with Black Triangle using the discount code SPYCRAFT101 or by navigating to blacktriangle.com slash SPYCRAFT101. I love mine, and I know you're going to love yours too. In April of 1961, the CIA-led invasion at the Bay of Pigs began with an explosion. The prisoners at the Presidium Modelo woke up to the sound of anti-aircraft fire from the roof of the prison. They looked out the windows and watched as an American B-26 bomber flew straight over the prison, bombing a Cuban patrol boat in the waters just off the coast. Christ, Anderson, and Zeminski had long suspected invasion might take place, but hadn't known when it might happen. But now the attack had finally begun. Over the next few days, everyone inside waited with dwindling hope for more news of the invasion. It made sense that the Presidium Modelo might be a strategic objective for the rebels. With thousands of political prisoners from the Cuban-educated class, as well as captured American mercenaries and the three CIA men themselves, it stood to reason that the CIA and the rebels would want to liberate the prison as quickly as possible. But the sounds of an attack never moved closer. No one ever arrived to liberate them. A few days later, they learned that the rebels had been defeated at the beachhead and that no one was coming to rescue them. Everyone inside felt dejected and near hopelessness and waited for what was to come. After the failed invasion at Playa Giron in the Bay of Pigs, Castro took steps to ensure that no one from the Presidium Modelo would ever be rescued by another invading army. He ordered the prison to be mined with thousands of pounds of TNT explosives so as to destroy the entire facility and kill all of the prisoners with the push of a plunger if it became necessary. For three weeks afterwards, Cuban military demolition specialists used jackhammers and air compressors to cut holes in the support pillars of each building on the compound 
and ran a buried conduit far away to a point outside the perimeter fence, well outside of the blast zone. Military cargo trucks delivered crates of explosives to the prison, with an estimated three tons buried beneath each of the five circulars. So around 30,000 pounds total of explosives underneath the prison, which held more than 6,000 prisoners. Now, under the threat of an absolute massacre, the thousands of Cuban prisoners turned to the three captive Americans to help save them. A former Cuban Air Force officer named Captain Miro organized the prisoners and requested help from the three engineers. The CIA men rose to the challenge, just like they had every single day since they first arrived. Working together, they created a plan to sabotage the explosives using anything they could scrounge from inside the prison. Not only did they have to disable the bombs, but they would also have to do it without leaving any telltale indicators of tampering. Every single prisoner was aware of the danger that they were all in, so there wasn't really any way to hide their activities. Anything they did that would be common knowledge throughout the prison within hours. The men had to trust that the prisoners understood that they were all in this together and that no one would turn them in to the guard force. On the lowest level of the prison, they discovered a five-inch wide drain pipe that would lead to the buried explosives. Two Cuban prisoners loyal to Captain Miro were tasked with widening the hole from five inches to at least 12 inches wide. Once they finished, one of the smallest Cubans, who was nicknamed Americano, was enlisted to slither his way through the hole and put eyes on the explosives for the first time. Americano was directed to bring back samples of anything he could find so the technicians could get an idea of what they were dealing with. Americano came back with primer cord, blasting caps, a five kilogram block of TNT, and a verbal description of everything else that he had seen down there. Now, at least, the technicians knew what they were facing. The guard force had rigged the explosives with two separate initiators, the primer cord, which is a type of ultra-fast burning fuse, and a standard electric wire detonator. The CIA men set to work on how to disable both initiators without the guards realizing that sabotage had occurred from inside the prison. They had to come up with a way of cutting the fuse while still keeping tension on the line at the other end. If the guard force tested the primer cord line and found it was slack, they would know immediately that it had been cut, and the electric wires had to continue carrying a current just on the chance that the guard force might test the wires with a galvanometer. And all they had to work with was a very few limited tools, just some razors, knives, and sewing kits. So David Christ started working to come up with a method of sabotage. Meanwhile, Walter Zuminski needed to come up with a plan for what to do in case they disabled the bombs and the Cuban guards tried to trigger them and realized what had happened. In the event that the guard actually triggered the explosives, but nothing happened, they might just come in shooting anyway since the decision had been made to kill all of the prisoners. Zeminski set to work with other prisoners to create improvised weapons in case they were needed for a prison break. Knowing they would only have minutes from the time the bombs were triggered until the guards realized who was really in charge of the prison complex, they would have to make a frontal assault on the main perimeter gate to have any chance of a mass escape. So, 
using the TNT and the blasting caps that Americano had salvaged from beneath the prison, Zeminski constructed hand grenades using empty tin cans, rocks, and nails. He devised some crude timer fuses from IV tubing from the infirmary and ground up match heads. Meanwhile, another Cuban prisoner, who had been the chief chemist for the Bacardi Rum Company, figured out how to distill alcohol from rotten fruit scraps and used this process to create fuel from Molotov cocktails. The same chemist later created a perfect replica of Cuvassier cognac using shoe polish for the coloring. Zeminski was even able to build a homemade flamethrower using a spare kerosene stove. He made tight brass seals on the lamp's fuel reservoir by polishing brass parts with a combination of marble dust and toothpaste. By pumping air into the reservoir, he could build enough pressure to throw the fuel an acceptable distance. It could be lit by a handheld lighter as it sprayed out. Because of the open design of the circulars, the men had to work in full view of the central guard tower, hiding their assembly efforts just by turning their backs to the tower while they worked inside their cells. Just as it had before, the carelessness of the Cuban authorities played to the advantage of the CIA men. Once again, American ingenuity saved that day. The CIA men came up with a method for using a sewing spindle to block the tunnel once the primer cord was cut, which would maintain tension on the line. They also figured out how to short the electrical wire by cutting the insulation, twisting the wires into an X shape to short them out, and then shoving the insulation back down over the twist so as to hide it from a cursory examination. After Christ and the others came up with this method, the men had to train Americano to perform the actual work. Because he would be in a dark, confined space, surrounded by thousands of pounds of explosives, the CIA men, CIA men put him through a rigorous training program ahead of time. Americano practiced diffusing the massive bomb upstairs in the cells while lying on his stomach, completely covered by a blanket, to block out all available light. He went through the complex procedures again and again under realistic conditions in the pitch black until they finally ran out of pilfered materials to train with. The Americans decided that he was as ready as he would ever be. One hour before the final prisoner count of the night, they finally put the plan into action. Americano disappeared into the drain pipe and returned a few minutes later. He'd completed the mission of a lifetime and disabled 6,000 pounds of explosives. With the work complete under Circular 4, they still had to disable the bombs under the remaining four buildings in Presidium Modelo. They passed the details of their operation through the informal prison network to the most capable men in the other circulars, and a few days later, word came back that the explosives in all five buildings had been successfully diffused. Castro's plan to obliterate thousands of prisoners at once had been defeated by three American technicians. Then, after more than 19 long months living in Circular 4, the men were transferred to slightly better living conditions in Circular 1. This was because serious negotiations were finally underway for their release. The now-famous American attorney, James Donovan, had taken up their cause. A year before, he had successfully negotiated the release of captured CIA pilot Francis Gary Powers from a Soviet prison along with an American student named Frederick Pryor from the government of East Germany. 
Donovan was portrayed by Tom Hanks in the 2015 Steven Spielberg movie Bridge of Spies. Now he had begun face-to-face conversations with Castro himself for the release of many of the prisoners from the Bay of Pigs disaster. Donovan traveled to Cuba on a pro bono basis to negotiate the release of 1,113 prisoners. As these negotiations continued, Donovan built enormous rapport with Castro, and both sides made concessions to each other. In the end, Donovan and Castro came to an agreement to release the 1,113 prisoners from the Bay of Pigs, to allow their families to depart Cuba as well, which was 9,703 people in total. Donovan also secured the release of 37 additional American citizens, including David Christ, Thornton Anderson, and Walter Zeminski. In exchange for all of these prisoners, Cuba received $2.9 million in funds raised by private companies and charitable organizations. They received $53 million worth of medicine and baby food for the Cuban people, and the release of four Cuban prisoners held in New York, along with 17,500 tons of surplus food, which was released by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. 949 days after they were first arrested in that apartment in Havana, the men returned home to their nation and to their families. On the flight with them were 18 other Americans, including Richard Pecorero, whom they had befriended and cared for inside the Presidium. Walter Zeminski's mother had passed away during their confinement, and he only learned of it on the flight home. Thornton Anderson's youngest son didn't even know him, and his older children barely remembered him by that point. Zeminski eventually married his sweetheart Elsie, a CIA secretary who had waited all that time for his return. They had two children together. David Chris's days in the field were over, and he took a high-ranking position in the Directorate of Science and Technology. He passed away in 1985 and is buried in Arlington National Cemetery. Despite everything they had been through, Anderson and Zeminski returned to the forefront of CIA operations. Five years later, they were working together again in a light aircraft belonging to Air America when they took ground fire during a collections mission. All three men were eventually awarded the Distinguished Intelligence Cross, which was the equivalent to the Congressional Medal of Honor for military personnel. In 1979, they were finally received these awards after Stansfield Turner, the Director of Central Intelligence, finally learned of their incredible exploits. In the 32-year history of the CIA up until that point, only seven other men had been awarded the Distinguished Intelligence Cross. Never once during their long captivity did their resolve waver. Never once did they give the enemy what they wanted, which was actionable intelligence and a propaganda coup against the United States. Their Cuban jailers consistently underestimated them and never realized the full capability and resourcefulness of the men that they imprisoned in the Presidium. They took everything a hardened communist government could throw at them and gave it back, saving lives and undermining the regime in the process. After all that, they returned home with their honor intact. As I said at the beginning of this episode, this story is the product of my own research. I have written an article covering this story on my page at patreon.com, which includes multiple photos as well. If you're interested in more of Spycraft 101, look for my page on Instagram at Spycraft 101 or connect with me on Patreon. 
My patrons get exclusive access to long-form blog posts that dive deep into some of the most amazing stories in the history of espionage and receive free or discounted books and products from the Spycraft 101 store. That includes a free PDF copy of my own book, Spy Shots Volume 1, 101 True Tales from the World of Espionage. I want to say a big thank you to all of my patrons, including Galen M. and Erica P. With your support, I've been able to fund my research and publication across multiple platforms to date. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you'll stick around because there's lots more to come.